Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I like to tell this one to kids who like Star Wars. How did Luke Skywalker know what Darth Vader got him for Christmas? He felt his presence. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you everything you need to emerge triumphant from your weekly dinner gatherings. Yes, you just got a joke from AC Newman, frontman of Canadian supergroup The New Pornographers. Their album Brill Bruisers is out now. And speaking of supergroups, later X-Men star James McAvoy will join us. And he talks filth. Don't worry. It's the name of a movie. That's right. Also coming up, actor, director, and screenwriter John Favreau dishes about his latest film, Chef. Author Emma Straub reads from her book, The Vacationers. And North Carolina music duo Sylvan Esso suggests music to grill sausages by. And if that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in May. So cast your mind back to a time before either kind of football season Hmm. when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Pennsylvania would become the 19th state to legalize same-sex marriage. The House has passed legislation banning collection of any person's records without a court order. Google is now the world's most valuable brand. Apple fell to number two. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Anna Sale. She is the host and producer and chief bottle washer of Death, Sex, and Money, a brand new podcast from our friends at WNYC. Anna what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about, you know, the term gung-ho. You know, yeah. I, huh. I use it. The marine term. The marine term, but also, ah, feeling gung-ho about this. There's you know. also that movie, the 1986 Michael Keaton movie. <laughs> gung-ho. <laughs> yeah. First thing that comes to mind. Of yeah. course. Well, I was reading about in Medium that this term gung-ho, it, it didn't just start with the Marines. It actually started in China. It's a Chinese term. Huh. Gung-he is is how it's pronounced, I believe. And it means work together. Okay. And it's oh. a communist slogan, which is kind of interesting for something that's associated with the American military and, and Marines in particular. <laughs> Seems counterintuitive. Yeah. Yes. Yes. This Marine, uh, Evans Carlson, a Marine officer, was in China in the 1930s. And he heard the term while, while watching communist rebels in action. He liked the way they worked together. Mm. So it wasn't just that he liked the term gung-ho. He liked the spirit of watching these huh. work camps. The esprit de corps. The, the esprit de corps. Whoa. So he said, let's bring this to the Marines. That's cool. Well, wait, then shouldn't we swap it out for a capitalist slogan instead of work together, work for profit or something? Yeah, that doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> it doesn't have the punch. Live free or die, New Hampshire. I think that's, uh, yeah. what, I think that's what the Chinese Marines say. <laughs> Confusing. <laughs> Live free or die. Everyone's stealing everyone's slogans. So wait a second. This, this sounds surprising, but did you guys know that Semper Fi is actually an old deadhead term for <laughs> groovy love, man? So it's, it's weird how these things evolve. NSL, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now we're gung-ho for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. Let's start with the history, shall we? All right. This week, back in 1899, an unlucky motorist was the first American to experience what's now a common driving nightmare. Yep, it's called a speeding citation. Mm -hmm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. At the turn of the century, speeding was a relative term. Evidence? The case of Jacob German. He was your typical New York City taxi driver, screaming around town in his cab, blowing past horse-drawn carriages and pedestrians. Finally, on May 20th, 1899, 
He zoomed past a bike cop who promptly pulled him over and gave him the first speeding citation ever. But how did a bike cop manage to keep up, you ask? Well, Jacob was only going 12 miles an hour. Back then, the limit was eight or four if you were making a turn. And if Jacob's speed wasn't outrageous by modern standards, his punishment was he spent a night in the slammer. It took a few years for the justice system to realize that punishment didn't exactly fit the crime. But finally, in 1904, a guy named Harry Myers got pulled over in Dayton, Ohio, and instead of jail, was served the first ever actual paper ticket. No one seems to know the exact amount of Harry's fine, but it was definitely less than the one a Swiss millionaire got slapped with in 2010. He was caught in his Ferrari, going 85 through a village in Switzerland, where speeding fines are based on the driver's wealth. He paid a world record $290,000. So that was the history. Now for the cocktail to go along with it, I am joined by Colin Maxwell. He is lead bartender at Lexington Brass, and Lexington Avenue is where Jacob got his speeding ticket. Colin, what cocktail did it inspire you to make? The piece of the story that I latched onto was the fact that that speeding ticket was issued by a bicycle police officer. Yeah, I pictured a big front wheel, little back wheel. Exactly, and I feel like with the tiny amount of respect that any cop on a bicycle these days gets, they should really be latching on to the fact that they were the original people that were tracking down speeders and pulling people over and everything. If it wasn't for them, there would be no California Highway Patrol with Poncharella and everything like that. Exactly. The Ponch is a direct descendant of this nameless officer. All right, so how are we going to celebrate this unnamed hero? Uh, so the drink I came up with is uh, the Policeman's Bicycle. It's a twist on a, another kind of classic aperitif cocktail called a Bicyclette. Campari, white wine, and club soda, but I wanted to soup it up a little bit. And the bicycle that sounds a little dainty, I agree, so we need something a little more robust. Policeman's bicycle feels like there's probably guns mounted on it, and you can handcuff somebody to it. So we're going to start with the ounce and a quarter of Aperol. What is Aperol? Bartenders always think of Aperol as Campari's little cousin or something. It's very bitter, very like, grapefruity, but it has a slightly higher sugar content and a slightly lower alcohol content. All right, and so what's next? Then we're going to do just a half ounce of Hendrix gin. Two ounces of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a half ounce of lemon juice. And it's got a beautiful kind of uh, orange color going on there right now. Yeah, kind of somewhere between a red light and a yellow light, I guess. Well, he, only, he got a speeding ticket. He didn't run any lights. I don't even know if they had lights in 1899, to be honest. And then we're just going to top it off with club soda and garnish it with an orange wedge. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. That almost tastes healthy. Almost tastes healthy, yes. You know those V8 commercials where people walk, they straighten up? This is the opposite. You drink this, you'll ride your bike sideways afterwards. Exactly. Enrico, I like how the Swiss think, you know? Yeah. Speeding fines based on wealth. That's true, but I would actually like to see a lot of speeding fine criteria. You know, like uh, you should pay an extra fine if you're in a giant SUV on my narrow street. Okay. Uh, extra if you're blasting lousy music. All right, but for based sure. on whose taste in music? On my taste. Oh. Uh, extra fine for vanity license plates. That's well, there important. you have most of L.A. will pay extra then. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not driving my 16-year-old Corolla playing indie pop, you pay more fines. Noted. That's the law. Folks, uh, if you're not driving, our drink recipes are on our website. Yeah. They're dinnerpartydownload.org. <laughs> 
So we've made small talk, mixed a drink, but it's not truly a party till there's music playing. And here with suggestions are Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn. They comprise the North Carolina duo called Sylvan Esso. They're electronic pop turned heads at the South by Southwest Music Festival this year. And now everyone has a chance to hear them. Their self-titled debut just came out. Here they are with song suggestions to enjoy outdoors. Hey, I'm Nick. I'm Amelia. And we're Sylvan Esso, and this is our dinner party soundtrack. We opted for the backyard brat cookout. A very important thing for Nick because he is from Wisconsin. As a Wisconsinite, the grilling and boiling of brats in beer and onions is a part of my soul. I wish that you were still around. So we decided to start out with a song by this band Landlady called Above My Ground, which I think would totally set the right tone of being like, this is a weird, fun time. They do an extremely good job of making very weird music that is completely themselves. Kind of like theatrical pop yeah, music, almost, but there's a lot of jazz elements. Yeah, almost in a real, like a really fun, kind of almost Frank Zappa-esque. It's like, just a bunch of sweaty, wild, happy dudes. They just carry the light of humanity. They're warriors for honesty. And the next phase of our party, we would put the coals on. And at the same time, you put the brats in beer. Oh, well, that's been happening for a while, but yes. That's been happening for a while? Well, you need at least 60 minutes. Nick is the real chef in this situation. Uh, pers- although there's, there, you know, methods differ. I don't want to alienate the brat-eating audience out there. And so we thought for this... There's this band called Lomelands from Durham that we totally love. Mm-hmm. This is a song uh, by Lomelands called Another Reason. In your sweet reflection on your land, I can hold you tightly, and that can. It's kind of like a rollicking folk rock kind of jammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a little, <laughs> you know, kind of a toe tapper, a subtle toe tapper, so you can be eating, talking, yeah. and, and tapping. Gotta keep on. They're just a really good band. It's a perfect song to have on while you're hanging out, talking to a friend, eating brats. Number three is Cosmos by the band Porches. Pay no attention while I'm getting spaced out. This seems like kind of a later in the night kind of song. Exactly, Fireflies. Coming out. Yeah, maybe maybe like the campfire started now. Now you've moved into s'more phase. Some whiskey or something. Flasks around the campfire. That kind of seems like the vibe. Indeedy. And we all die. Cosmos is actually about zoning out at a party. At least that that's like, kind of what it seems like. It's that's about, like right? the main yeah the main themes. I don't live here. I live in cosmos. But yeah, this is just a beautiful song. This guy writes such fantastic confessional music and does it in such a totally unique and interesting way. Yeah, it's not heavy-handed. The way that he communicates is just beautifully succinct. 
If we were going to pick one of our songs for a dinner party, I think it would be the song Coffee. Because you can both cook to it and you can dance to it. True. It's a dance we know the most. It's a bummer. It's a bummer of a song. A uh, and eventually redemptive. You fall in love for the first time. It's like coming up for air. All of a sudden you're like, oh my God, life is like this. And then you like totally that one up. And then you fall in love again. And it's the same exact feeling again. And I feel euphoric, but I know this feeling of euphoria. The idea that the specialness isn't special is replicable. Get up, get down. Get up, get down. You know, when you first feel that, that's a really upsetting thing to realize. But then that actually is a beautiful loop to be in, that we can make this happen over and over again, that our lives are this emotional loop and progression. And then you understand that you can keep on working on making a perfect loop. Get up, get down. Get up, get down. Be the general nation and stop. See the next one waiting. Get up, get down. Get up, get down. Get up. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of Sylvan Esso and Rico, in case you're searching for a meaning behind their name, All right. don't. They just thought it sounded nice. That's oh, why they man. called that. There go my <laughs> elaborate theories about trees and gas stations. There you go. We're going to take a break, folks. But coming up, X-Men star James McAvoy talks about a less than super heroic role when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, author Emma Straub reads from her new novel, The Vacationers. And later, comedy writer Kristen Newman brags about her fancy travels and then deigns to give you etiquette advice. Ugh. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yeah, and this week it's Scottish actor James McAvoy. If you're a superhero fan, you've already seen him as Professor X in the movie X-Men Days of Future Past. And he was the romantic lead in the war film Atonement, for which he earned a Golden Globe nomination. But this week, you can catch him playing a very different kind of role in the film adaptation of Irvin Welsh's novel Filth. It won James a British Independent Film Award, and it opens in the U.S. May 30th. This week, he joined me from London to talk about it. And, James, it is a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for a lovely introduction as well. And, you know, you earned it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've arrived. You did it. You're on our show. <laughs> now, I should say first off that Filth is, this is not a family film. No. It is about a, a deeply corrupt cop. His name is Bruce. He's vying for a promotion. His life is unraveling. He's killing the pain by indulging in every cruelty and vice imaginable. Drugs, drinking, sex addiction, a certain amount of misogyny. Your performance starts at pretty much a fever pitch, and it doesn't let up for most of the film. Tell me what was happening on set before the camera rolled, before some of the more frenzied scenes. What were you doing to jack yourself up like that? Do you know what, man? Not a lot. Like, um... You're just naturally like that? It's strange. It's strange. I'm really unlikely casting for this role. I appreciate that. And people wouldn't necessarily think that I'm like this, and I'm not. But this movie fell out to me so much easier than... Other parts that I've played that apparently seem like easier roles, you know? But I mean, seriously, you went from zero to that? The camera's rolling, you just turned it on like a switch? I think it was a little bit. You know, it, it's like when you know when you tell a story in the pub, right? Mm. Before you tell the story, you're not spending 10 minutes going like, right, I'm going to get psyched up to tell a story. You just tell the story <laughs> because you have a need. You have a need to impart 
the desperate nature of some horrible situation that's happened to you or some funny thing that's happened to you, you have a need to tell it. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with filmmaking for me and acting, you know what I mean? I've got a need to tell that story. I really want to tell that story. Nine times out of 10, if it's written well, and I really want to tell it, I don't need to spend 10 minutes convincing myself that I want to tell that story. You what, know what I mean? Yeah, but what attracted you to telling this particular story? It sounds like you had a very personal connection to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's about a very abusive, manipulative, abhorrent character who does all the worst possible things, quite in the vein of somebody like Iago or Atreus or Richard III or something like that, you know what I mean? And that's fun. So that's one of the, the attractions. It's fun being a character that's that kind of over the top. Yeah, it's that bad. You know, historically, we love characters that abuse people. As long as they're sort of doing it covertly and give a nudge and a wink to the audience and let them in on it, we seem to love that. Mm. What generally you need to do beyond that, because I think audiences would get tired of that quite quickly, uh, and I was getting tired of that in the script until about page 30. I was like, right, I'm ready for something more. And as soon as I turned the page... I got something more. And you start to realize that his behavior is basically a symptom of his mental illness. But what, what's the personal connection to that? Well, I suppose the fact that, you know, you tell me that you're going to make a British movie about a policeman, a working class guy who's got alcohol and drug problems and who's mentally ill. I'd probably think it's going to be like a black and white, gritty social commentary drama. Sure, do you know what sure. I mean? Yeah. It'll be very worthy with a point to say about the state of mental health care issues in Great Britain. <laughs> and it's not that film at all. For me, it's a film that represents what it's like to be inside this guy's head. Mm. It's vibrant, energetic, at times entertaining, and sometimes totally offensive. And for me, it's a more sort of surreal, interesting, artistic depiction of somebody with mental health problems, because I've got quite a lot of experience in mental health okay. problems in my life, uh, and, and the really? director did as well. And we were both just really excited about not doing something worthy with it, but doing something energetic with it. But was there some worry that went with that, too? I mean, because it's a blackly funny movie, you know, if it doesn't strike exactly the right tone, it can come off as reveling in the behavior it's lamenting. Yeah, and to be perfectly honest with you, I think there have been lots of people who think that, and there will be more people who think that. that about this just, film? Yeah, I think so. I wasn't worried about all of that. I was, you know, there's a certain part of it that goes like, this is a bold undertaking. It's going to take quite a lot of delicate finessing in terms of how we push the audience away from us, but then how we also draw them back in and make them feel empathy for somebody who they have condemned in the first five minutes. So I knew that that was difficult and I was not entirely certain that we'd be able to pull it off. Yeah. But I thought even if we fail, it's worthwhile doing because it's the best script I've ever read as well. So regardless of how it turned out, I had to get involved. To call this guy a rogue isn't going nearly <sighs> far enough, but there is a little similarity between him and the young Professor X in X-Men who that character isn't yet the wise, peaceful character that he'll grow up to be. He's this kind of yeah. sex and ego-driven guy. But then, <laughs> but then in Atonement, you're this lovelorn paragon of virtue. Which do you prefer? You mentioned before, you know, the, the joy of playing a Richard III type. Do you know what? I think somebody like Robbie in Atonement, I loved Robbie and I, and I still love him. And, but he's sort of not really a human being. He was the director quite often talked about him as like Christ, almost, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he was so sort of... Like unrealistic and his ability to suffer, <laughs> you know what I mean, was sort of otherworldly. Endlessly. Yeah, completely. So more of this in the future, you think, for you? Yeah, well, I suppose I've just finished one. I played Dr. Victor von Frankenstein. You know, his story's all about obsession and 
ego and <laughs> supplanting God. There's a lot of similarities there. There's certainly, there's certainly mental health problems with old Dr. Vic. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try not to psychoanalyze you right now. But. Yeah, I know. But honesty, God, is the work that comes my way at the moment. I've not been looking for it. It's, All right. Does it interest you that maybe people are starting to cast you that way? Do you go like, hey, wait a second. I'm, you know I am a sane gentleman. <laughs> no, I like it. I mean, the two characters that I've played that I'll miss playing the most are Macbeth and uh, Bruce in filth. Not because they're both Scottish, but because they are both <laughs> so complex and so much victims of the world, you know? And it just shows you how corrupting the world can be, that it creates monsters, you know? We asked two questions of everyone on the show. And the first one is, what question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, would you least like to be asked? Oh, I know. Probably like... Was that your legs in Narnia? What was your legs in Narnia, or was it was oh, it CGI? That's right. You played that. you played Mr. Tumnus in the Chronicles of Narnia, who is a half man, half goat. Yes, he's a satyr, a fawn. <laughs> They're asking if those were your actual goat legs. Yeah, people were like, "How did you do that? Did you were those your own legs?" I mean, what is wrong with people? That's insane. <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of weird. All right, I hope you just hike your pants up and go. Nope. <laughs> um, our last question is: Tell us something we don't know. Anything in the world. It could be like a piece of trivia, an anecdote. All right, okay. Um, the thermos flask, television, and telephones came from Scotland. What? The thermos flask, like a, a flask that keeps things hot. Yeah, is that... Television and uh, telephone all came from Scotland. All right, I'm going to check on all of those because I can imagine you might have a lot of national pride and would lie to me, but it does make sense. The thermos always has that tartan exterior. You're right, dude. It does. Is that why? I don't know, but it's Scottish invention. Very proud of that. Brendan, I couldn't verify why exactly thermoses are often tartan-colored, hmm. but it is true. The vacuum flask, a.k.a. the thermos, was invented by a Scot, a guy named Sir James Dewar. Dewar? That's right. Did he also invent Dewar's scotch? I wondered the same thing, uh, but I think it's just a common name. Okay, Scotland. but if you drank scotch out of a thermos, oh, yeah. your pants will immediately turn into a skirt. That's as Scottish as it gets. To eavesdrop. Emma Straub's new novel, The Vacationers, is popping up on summer reading lists everywhere from the Boston Globe to Harper's Bazaar. It comes out this week. Today we overhear her read an excerpt. Hi, this is Emma Straub. My new book is called The Vacationers. It's about an American family on a two-week vacation in Mallorca, Spain. The daughter in the family, Sylvia, is 18 years old and she has just graduated from high school. You will see things don't start smoothly for her. After their arrival in Spain, Sylvia had passed out immediately in the smallest bedroom, which looked like it had been built for a nun. A bed hardly wider than her slim, teenaged body, white walls, painted white floor. The only thing unnunlike about the room was a painting of a naked woman in repose. Sylvia stretched lazily, her pointed toes hanging over the end of the bed. The house smelled weird like wet rocks and frogs, and it took Sylvia several minutes to remember where she was. Me llamo Sylvia Post, she said. Donde esta el baño? Sylvia had few thoughts about Spain. It wasn't like France, which made her think of baguettes and bicycles, or Italy, which made her think of gondolas and pizza. Picasso was Spanish but looked French and sounded Italian. 
There was the one Woody Allen movie that took place in Spain, but Sylvia hadn't actually seen it. She might as well have woken up in a sunny bedroom somewhere on the island of Peoria, Illinois. The bathroom was down the hall, and it looked like it hadn't been renovated since 1973. There was no proper shower, just a handheld nozzle on a long silver neck that began at the hot and cold knobs. Sylvia turned the hot one and waited for a minute, and when the warmth didn't arrive, she turned the other knob, stripped off her clothes, and climbed in. Sylvia couldn't quite work out how to wash her body with one hand and douse herself with freezing cold water with the other. All the towels in the bathroom seemed to have been made for little people, Thumbelina-sized people. Sylvia tried to wrap her upper and lower parts with two of the glorified washcloths. She combed her hair with her fingers and looked at herself in the mirror. She wasn't bad-looking, she wasn't deformed, but she also knew that there was a vast chasm between her and the girls at her school who were beautiful. Her face was a little bit long, and her hair hung limply to her shoulders, neither blonde nor brown, but somewhere in the middle. That was Sylvia's whole problem. She was the middle. Nothing anyone would write a poem about. Sylvia thought about that a lot. So many of the world's best poems were written before their authors were really adults. Keats, Rimbaud, Plath. And yet they had packed so much beauty and agony into their lives, enough to sustain their memory for centuries. Sylvia stuck out her tongue and carefully opened the bathroom door with the hand holding the towel around her waist. Pardon! There was a boy attached to the voice. Sylvia shut her eyes, hoping that she was hallucinating, but when she opened them again, he was still there. Maybe boy wasn't the right word. There was a young man standing in front of her, maybe her brother's age, maybe younger, but definitely older than she was. Oh my God, Sylvia said. She didn't want to notice that the complete stranger who was staring at her while she was wearing very tiny towels was handsome, with dark, wavy hair like someone on the cover of a romance novel, but she couldn't help it. Oh my God, she said again, and hurried around him, taking the smallest steps possible so that her legs were never more than two inches apart. Safely on the other side of her bedroom door, Sylvia let the towels drop to the floor so that she could use both of her hands to cover her face and scream without making any noise at all. Emma Straub, reading from her novel, The Vacationers. It comes out this week. And you're listening, maybe just outside the bathroom door, to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Enrico, you've known me long enough to know that there is one thing I always bring to a dinner party. Hmm, a hatred of vermouth. (laughs) There is that. But also (laughs) a stain stick. This is a product that magically eliminates food stains, of which I always have many because I am, Mm -hmm. let's say, a passionate eater. I have seen this to be true. (laughs) Been splattered on. But this week, I learned that that may put me on the forefront of fashion, Cara Piazza is a New York-based fabric designer who makes clothing dye out of food waste. Mm-hmm. To find out what that's all about, I visited her at her studio and asked how she got into staining clothes for a living. I went to college in London where I studied textiles, and we had a workshop with this lovely lady who I completely forgot her name, which is terrible, but she ran a workshop with us on natural dyeing, and one of the things she was doing was using food and spices. She showed us how to dye with turmeric and I was sitting there going, oh, well, like if we can use turmeric, maybe we can use other things. And I'd 
remember reading about, I think it's a Romanian Easter egg dyeing you can do with onion skin. So I kind of just hit the kitchen and started playing with it. How is it possible that onions can dye? What color dye? You can get everything from like a really beautiful, rusty, deep orange to like a pale, light yellow. And with different assists like alum or different metals like iron, you can get like a dark green. Tell me about the shift to food waste. I... I'm a really big advocate of sustainability in fashion, so it kind of bothered me that as I was doing this, I was wasting the food. So, so how does that work practically? I mean, do you just see a compost bin and you're like, there it is? <laughs> well, no. Um, I've actually partnered with certain restaurants. I worked with Reynard um, at the White Hotel, and they were awesome. We tried a project for a month where the chefs there actually siphoned off a bunch of their food that they throw away in buckets and I like did two pickups a week which was insane and I have onion skins to last me a lifetime. Give me the five kind of basic pieces of food waste that you use for dye. Okay well onion skins is a big one. Uh, Avocado peels, any kind of tops if you buy like organic carrots or fennel uh, or anything that has like a large rooty thing coming out of the top of it you have to chop it off anyway before you cook it. That makes like a really beautiful green a lot of the time. Squid ink I love. I don't eat squid that often, and it's, you know, the ink sacks are quite small, so it's more of a gourmet dye, I guess, if you'd say. So this is an existential question that lies at the heart of your project. What is the difference between what you do and a stain? I spill stuff on my clothes all the time, and I don't get written up in vogue. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, you know what? I guess they just make it look good. <laughs> so, it's, so it's controlled staining. Controlled staining. It's ordered chaos. No, there, there are some other questions. I mean, when you stain your shirt, besides the fact that it makes maybe it just looks whack, it disappears. It, you know, it doesn't stay consistent. So how do you shift from a stain to an actual dye? Well, to fix the, to fix a natural dye onto any fabric, you need something called a mordant. And what a mordant is, it's, it's a chemical assist, but um, in my case, it's, a, it's like a natural chemical. It's non-toxic um, that will bind the color to the fabric. So you use some like alum or washing soda, uh, different teas that provide different tannins. Um, All right. So can you show me how, yeah. how what this dye works? So you have these two big pots. One is a humongous pot filled with onion skins. Yes. And then this looks like fennel fronds. Yes. This is extracting the dye. So you put the stuff in a pot with water. You cover it so... All of the matter is pretty much just evenly covered over and you let it cook for about a half an hour, two hours, however long, till the color, you know, turns the color you want. And then what you do is the fun part is you strain it into your bigger pot. All right. You're basically pouring the materials through a sieve. I'm pouring the materials through a sieve and adding it to more water because I'm going to be dyeing uh, a large amount of fabric. Ooh, watch out. It's a little bit hot. <laughs> So right now I'm just dyeing a set of aprons um, and we'll just throw this in here. And what I've done here is something called shibori. It's a Japanese binding technique. You basically fold the fabric like it's origami and you bind it with bulldog clips. And bulldog clips, they're just for people who can't see them. They're just, they're just basically like big, those big black clips you used for files. Exactly. It's like tie-dye. You can yeah. use rubber bands, you can use clips, you can use... Shibori is a really fancy word for tie-dyeing. It makes it sound way more high class. So how long will that hang out in there? This guy's probably going to hang out for about a half an hour, and then I'm going to check up on it and then add more color, mess around until it's the way I like it. And then this next phase would be you would remove it and just kind of hang it out to dry? You remove it, you hang it out to dry. Um, Once it dries naturally, you iron it 
the heat sets the color. That's another way of setting the color. And then you have to wash it so it doesn't smell like onion. And then you have to wash it so it doesn't smell like onion. And then you iron it again unless you like your stuff wrinkled. So do you like plain clothes? Like I'm wearing a white shirt right now. Does this upset you? No, it doesn't upset me at all. I actually have taken to wearing a uniform of all white. I think as they deal with color all day, every day, just like having a stark uniform or just, and by uniform, I mean like white jeans and a white t-shirt. You, the, you what you're wearing is not white right now. It was, it was. You look like a tablecloth after someone had a blueberry pie eating contest. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. So Rico, any color can be made from food waste. And I found this interesting. Avocado pits make things pink. What? Yeah, so what, weird. So if you've got pink guava, what color does that make? <laughs> Hunter green? I, I think it just makes everything into a Hawaiian print. Oh, yeah. magical. <laughs> People coming up, uh, etiquette advice from a debauched world traveler, and we chat with actor and director John Favreau when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we talk with blockbuster movie director John Favreau about his smaller-scale new film, Chef. Mm. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is writer and comedian Kristen Newman, not to be confused with Noonan. That's true. She wrote for some of the biggest hit sitcoms of the past couple of decades, including How I Met Your Mother and That 70s Show. Her new book is called What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding, a memoir of her globetrotting travels looking for adventure and love and often finding tawdry hookups. And <laughs> Kristen, welcome. Thank you so much. It's kind of like eat, love, love, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been called eat, pray, word I can't say. <laughs> With the P- called... P-R-E-Y instead of P-R-A-Y. Oh, my God, that's an NPR joke. So good. <laughs> so you were, you were in your late 20s. You're a comedy writer in L.A. And then this wanderlust grips mm-hmm. you. Uh, to travel and essentially to become someone else. And you call this other you Kristen Adjacent. What is the difference between regular you and Kristen Adjacent? Well, I found that when I traveled by myself for the first time, uh, specifically in countries that don't speak English, I couldn't talk. I couldn't be funny. I Hmm. couldn't uh, rat-a-tat-tat. I couldn't work my off at a dinner party, which is why I'm so excited to be here, because my specialty is taking deep responsibility at a dinner party. Uh, for making oh, it fun? Yeah. Good to know. And in other countries, I couldn't. You I just, had to just sit quietly. So the you adjacent is a quieter mm-hmm, Softer, less judgmental, because I'd be lonely traveling alone. So, so it made you embrace everyone. But someone listening to this, Kristen, might get the idea that this book is just a, a series of stories about you sitting quietly, <laughs> you know, reading the Herald Tribune, when that's not the case. It's such a good book. Um, it's just like Jane Austen. It's just yeah. a small book about a small woman thinking about maybe someday perhaps whispering in someone's ear. Well, one of the things you would whisper in someone's ear is, uh, you, you know, your philosophy is to go with the flow. You know, yeah. if you stumble into something amazing, then get rid of your day's plans and go for it. So it's like your prime travel directive. What is your favorite example of that happening to you? So... I'm obsessed with Argentina. I've gone several times. The second mm. time I went, just disasters kept happening. I had planned uh, to go on this extraordinary trip that was going to take me to Ushuaia, Tierra del Fuego. I was going to get on a boat. I was going to go to Chile. I was going to stay in beautiful resorts. 
And the morning that I woke up at 6 a.m. to get on my flight in Buenos Aires to go there, I realized that I had left my passport the night before. <sighs> they let me go to Ushuaia, but they wouldn't let me get on the boat to Chile because oh. it was out of the country. Kristen adjacent, what yeah. were you thinking? What a mess, right? But I asked them to point me to a great local little hostel. Here comes fate to the rescue, uh-huh. I'm sensing. I went I went to the little hostel, immediately met three hot Israelis who shared my beer, immediately met two great Australian girls and three great uh, new, you know, Kiwi girls. That's exactly, they're always in youth hostels. Yeah. Always. Australians, Israelis, and Kiwis. The people love to travel. Oh, and uh, and I turned, in, it turned into this three days that was the best travel magic I've ever had in my life. We all went out for St. Patrick's Day in Ushuaia <laughs> at the second southernmost <laughs> Irish bar in the world. All right. You know what, you know. Kristen, enough, enough. We're happy that you've been having a great time and the book is <laughs> <laughs> yes. filled with your amazing adventures, but we need your wisdom that you've gained over the years in, in your travels. So are you ready to answer our listeners' questions? Yes. Yes. All right. The first question comes from Krista in Reno. And Krista writes... With what frequency is it acceptable to move about the cabin or go to the restroom on long flights without being a total jerk? I recently flew from Seoul to Los Angeles and didn't get up the whole time since I was in the window seat and the two other people fell asleep. So I guess the secondary question is, should I have woken them up? Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. First of all, that is their problem. If they didn't yeah. want to be interrupted, they, they, they pick the window seat. Also, another option that I usually do, I just stand up on my seat and I, I walk over oh, their yeah. armrests you do the really? while yeah. they sleep, and they don't wake up. Is that yeah. seriously That's true? That's right. Yeah, I put my hands on the top of the seats, and I just put one foot on the first armrest, my second foot on the second armrest, and then I and then I land gracefully but in the what about, aisle. So now you've got your hands on the on those seat backs of mm-hmm. the people on either row mm-hmm. of you. Aren't you now waking those guys up by jostling their seats? Hey, guess what? If they didn't want to be jostled, they would have sat in first class. <laughs> That's right. You're not responsible <laughs> so, for the people that aren't in your row. Yeah. That sounds like it leads to chaos. But you know what? No, no one gets on a plane expecting to be unbothered and comfortable. Well, that is true. Yeah. Krista, you should feel okay going to the bathroom on an airplane flight. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You're a person. Everybody pees. <laughs> I can't even imagine. How is that even physically possible? That's like a 12-hour flight, right? From... I know. I feel like she's going to get a, an, an infection. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's something from Chris Stapps in Baltimore. He says, here's a pre-World Cup etiquette question. In American conversation, is it pretentious to say football? When referring to a game played using yes. a round bo- <laughs> Yes. Yep. Yes. If, if you're talking to another American, you have yes. to call it soccer. Exactly. Yes. I, I will say, though, if you are a foreigner with an adorable accent and you are in a bar and talking to an American girl, you say football. Like, that is going to get you what you're looking for. Say That's correct. As, as much flair as possible. Football. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Your puddle. Kristen, I love how, like, you're so worldly and savvy, yet you still fall for all these tricks. Come on. Immediately. An accent, especially the Irish. Oh, I worked with this Irishman last year. Everybody called him Irish. He was that Irish. <laughs> wow. Clever. And we found him adorable. Yeah. And everyone on the set was furious that if they had said any of the things to us that he said to everyone all the time, they'd be sued. All right. So for our last question, this is a question we ask most of our etiquette guests. And so we ask you, what is the most memorable get-together you've been to? Well, uh, I would have to say it was in New Year's Eve in Paris. My friend Pete Hike throws these gatherings every single year, just kind of raises his hand in the air and says, hey, everybody go to Paris or Brazil or Uruguay or Lisbon and like 50 people go or 100 people go. He's just he's. Ferris Bueller, I call him in the book. So he's a 1% guy, basically. That's right. It is a 1% sort of night I'm about to describe. (laughs) So his brother is a minister, an Episcopal minister in the American Cathedral in Paris. Uh So Pete threw a party 
in his brother's priest's apartment in the cathedral, right off the Champs-Élysées. So there were like a hundred people from all over the world. Is that allowed? I, I oh, don't yeah. know. I, I was raised Episcopal, guys. This is why my parents selected it. <laughs> it's pretty fun. And you can get married. He's married. And you go to heaven when you're done. It's great. <gasps> wow, what a party. The deacon was there and witnessed one of my friends stripping down to his gold speedo, which is a New Year's tradition. Uh, there was a Bond girl. There were Latvian models. There were members of the Algerian Parisian mafia that Pete had met in Paris that week. Man. And we all would teeter up in our stilettos with our champagne and our absinthe that Pete had smuggled in from Berlin, where he met oh. the Bond girl on the plane. Stop it. Uh-huh. I know, Kristen, you know what? Actually, this this has been <laughs> great. We have wow. to let you go because we're turning green with envy. An enemy maker. Uh, Kristen Newman, <laughs> thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Like a one percenter. <laughs> Get a lot of money, everybody. That's my advice. <laughs> Isn't gauche a French word? <laughs> Kristen Newman, her funny, sexy, and thoughtful new book is called What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding, a memoir. It's out now. And folks, if you have an etiquette question, send it to us, and yeah. we'll share it with someone we decide to call an expert. You can reach us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And we'd like to remind you, you're listening to an encore rebroadcast of an episode we first aired in May. Up now is my interview with John Favreau. He wrote and starred in the hit indie comedy Swingers about a circle of Rat Pack-obsessed friends helping each other through their 20s in Los Angeles. It made stars out of him and his fellow cast member Vince Vaughn. It made everyone take swing dancing lessons for a while. It was a pretty yeah. big deal. Uh, it was John... an uncomfortable time. <laughs> <laughs> for some of us. John went on to direct mega blockbusters like Elf and Iron Man, but his latest is a return to small, warm-hearted comedy. It's called Chef, and it's out on DVD this week. It's about a top chef who loses his restaurant gig and gets his mojo back by launching a food truck. Favreau wrote, directed, and stars in it. And when we spoke back in May, I noted he'd also created the TV talk show Dinner for Five, in which he talked with celebrity friends over a meal. So I asked why food inspired two of his projects. Yeah, well, more than two. I mean, you, you there's there's constantly eating. I'm sort of noticing Elf. I, you know, I I added that whole wrinkle as I was developing that script about him stuffing his face and how much elves eat. And oh, yeah. and in Iron Man, he's talking about flying Ray's pizza in from New York. It always seems to sneak into everything I do. It it was as as young as I could remember. Food was a topic of interest in my family. You know, if if my uncle d- discovered a new Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn, my uncle the cabbie, we would you know that was something we'd all go out for. And it was you know food was always a lubricant for conversation and something that brought people together. And it's not like you know with smartphones and iPads that's when everybody stopped sitting at the table together. It was you know even back then people were all off doing their own thing. But when a meal was served, and especially around a holiday, mm. you know, Christmas Eve with the Italian side of the family. That was, uh, you know, the meal was the focus, and the presents came later. Oh yeah, the feast of the seven fishes. That'll focus you. Yes, that's right. That'll make you put away the iPhone. That's right. Um, you you're obviously a food fan. How much did you know though about being a pro chef? I didn't know much at all. I read Kitchen Confidential by Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, and that was, uh, you know, an amazing window. But that was years ago. Yeah. And I had always been in the service industry as a bartender. Uh, you know, bartenders are always friends with the cooks. They, they, you, you'd slip them drinks, they'd slip you food. <laughs> it, was yes. a, it was a great arrangement. <laughs> and you bonded with them and you got to know everybody because you're all doing your work side by side. Uh, but there, there are a lot of really good books written about the food world. And it made me dive into it and want to 
you know, that's what's fun about making a movie is you get to learn from the best. You get to reach out to any chef you want. That's right. And this so, this film was co-produced by Roy Choi, actually, the, yes. the L.A. chef who arguably launched the food truck explosion with his Kogi Korean taco truck. Yeah. What did you learn from him, either about food as a profession or just about food preparation that most surprised you? It's, you know, it's like directing. There's nothing specific a director does. It's a million little things, be it my training, the way I held my towels, the way I wiped the cutting board, mm-hmm. the way my whites were buttoned, the chef's whites, the way... Little things, like John Leguizamo. Who plays your sidekick in the film. Yeah, it seems like a silly thing, but John Leguizamo takes a, a freshly delivered baguette and holds it up like it's his, like it's his <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he makes a whoop whoop noise. And that seems like such a silly little thing, but that's like a detail that Roy was very specific about. He says, every time bread is delivered, somebody, <laughs> some line cook will grab it and he will hold it like this. To his groin. And he will make this noise. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to tell me like some specific preparation of a sauce and you tell me that it's this. No, but that's, I mean, that is it too. I mean, it's it's what tools we use, the Vitamix as opposed to, you know, you see movies, you see all a lot of saucepans and copper pots and all yeah. these beautiful things that you just don't see in the kitchen. You see stainless steel, you see deli containers, you see Vitamixes. And what's beautiful to a chef is very different than what's beautiful to a director. Mm. And we wanted the movie to reflect what how a, a chef looks at at beauty and looks at, the essence of what goes on in the kitchen. I might not do everything great in my life. Okay, I'm not perfect. I'm not the best husband. And I'm sorry if I wasn't the best father. But I'm good at this. And I want to share this with you. I want to teach you what I learned. I get to touch people's lives with what I do. And it keeps me going and I love it. And I think if you give it a shot, you might love it too. Now, should we have served that sandwich? No, chef. That's my son. Get back in there. We got some hungry people. He's ready to cook. In the movie, the hero starts a food truck, and it serves Cuban food. Why did you pick that cuisine? I mean, in the movie, the plot reason is because his ex-wife is Cuban, and he goes with her to Miami. But you could have made her any nationality. Yeah, I, I kind of. I think it came from the music. I think I was listening to probably like Buena Vista Social Club and similar music as I was writing it. That was the mm-hmm. vibe. Just like I was listening to Sinatra when I was writing Swingers. Hmm. And also I knew that the kitchen staff was going to be all Latino because that was part of the authenticity of what I had read and what had not been reflected in restaurant movies. So I knew that that was part of the culture that he was involved with. And then the whole idea of Miami, because I had just been working in Miami on Iron Man 3 And that was the first Iron Man movie that I wasn't a director of. Right. You were the executive producer. But that's like being a grandpa. And grandpa (laughs) can't always step in and open his mouth. You know, grandpa has to kind of be nice and polite and pleasant and and offer uh, helpful suggestions, but not get in the way. And give a silver dollar every now and then. Exactly. You know, and everybody loves grandpa. The people don't love grandpa who gets in the middle and tells you how to raise your kids. Yes. And so I had a lot of free time on my hands. And one of Robert's friends, uh, who who is local there, uh, brought me... Robert Downey, sorry. Robert Downey's friends, who is local, took me to Little Havana, to the club that's in the film, Hoy Como Air. Oh, yeah. And I saw this great live Cuban salsa music, and I thought, oh, this is a magical, cool image. Let me just sock this away for something later. That was all floating around in my head, and the Cuban food became the, the nexus of it all. And there's something really romantic, I think, about like the exile Cuban culture of, of Little Havana. And the whole 50s nostalgia of how Cuba is still frozen in time. The cars and the architecture and 
everything's frozen in amber. To me, as a, as a nostalgic person, there's something really romantic about the, you know, it's still the guys and dolls image of Havana. Well, you, you, you mentioned romance. The thing I, I love about this film and all of your sort of personal films is this kind of romance. I'd say it's almost like a warmth between characters. They yeah. really love each other. Even the hero's antagonists in this movie have a soul. Thank you. And you can tell that it's not just from the writing. It feels like there's a real warmth between the actors in your movies. How do you yeah. create that? You know, everybody who's on the set, I've I've sat with each of them and had them comment and give input in their thoughts on each line, and I heard them say the lines. And if they can't say the lines like I wrote them, I change it to something they can score with. Mm. And, you know, and then in the case of like Oliver Platt or Robert Downey Jr. or Scarlett, I'm actually tearing it down to the studs and rewriting the scenes based on our meetings. And then I mm -hmm. run multiple cameras so that we could improvise if a better idea hits us. Even right. on Iron Man, I, I did that. You know, you can't do it with the action sequences, but I really try <laughs> to create a moment for spontaneity. I try to create an environment that I would like if I were an actor. I have to, you mentioned Iron Man. I'm a big fan, actually, of Elf and the Iron Man films. But I, I have to say, watching this, I kept thinking, like, how can the guy who made this feel comfortable directing a big noisy blockbuster. I love I mean the thing is I love the tech. I love I'm a geek and <laughs> if it weren't for the tech I would just do small movies. I really would. Because the politics isn't fun and the collaboration. If you're working with smart people it's great. If you're working with people who aren't scared it's great. Mm. But it's a big group of people and, and and oftentimes you're really trying to help people through the experience of collaborating on a big movie with a lot of money on the line, you know, being in there for the big pitch in the big game. And that's what it feels like when you've got one weekend to make all that money back or people are going to lose their jobs. You know, it's it's a scary yeah. game. You're, it's not for the faint of heart. But I love the tools that are available and the tools are expensive. And now mm -hmm. working on like Jungle Book, which I'm in the, uh, I'm working on now, you know, it's like, can what can technology offer this year? Can we make animals talk? It's basically like the, the chance to play with special effects and the big toys that yeah. keeps you from just making indie films for the rest of your life? I think so. Well, there's, there were frustrations with indie films, too. I mean, here I am. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little... Godzilla's eating the world now, and I'm existing somehow as like a little pilot fish eating the little scraps that fall off of the mouth of these enormous blockbuster movies. Chef versus Godzilla. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's like Bambi versus Godzilla, though. John Favreau, his new movie is called Chef. It's out this week on DVD. And Brendan, I was thinking, you know, John already has the comic book superfans in his corner, mm -hmm. right? Now he's going for the foodies, <laughs> you know? Right. Starting to feel like an army. Now all he needs to do is make a movie about cats. Oh, man. <laughs> that would be too much power. All right, and folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Till next week, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin is our web assistant. Engineering this week from Jeff Peters. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. You'll find dozens of episodes free at our website or on iTunes. Thanks and bon appetit. <laughs>